So, um, hey, how many of you guys uh, have a smartphone or smartwatch? Do they even make anything else? I don't know. I'm just not sure anymore, really. Um, yeah, most of us do. Most of us have one of those things. Uh, my dad uh, gave me an old um, watch that he wasn't using, and so um, I started wearing it, and when I hooked it up to my phone, uh, it, uh, like the Bluetooth, whatever it was, it just started like buzzing like crazy. And it was getting all these notifications. It went bzz, 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 for like a minute straight. And then, uh, like throughout the next two days, it kept doing the same thing over and over and over. It was buzzing. And it's just because I'm inept and I don't know how to turn it off, really turn off those notifications. Um, but for me, uh, what happened was, is like, this is, a, this is a, something that God kind of led into my heart in this reminder in Jeremiah. Which, by the way, actually, here's what happened. So um, I went into my phone because it's connected. And it was all these Amazon purchases, right? My brother has just bought a new house. And so they're, they're buying things for their house. And so I like read through it. And it's like, like curtains, 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 towels, rug, curtains, curtains, curtains. I'm like, that's a lot of curtains. Uh, and, uh, and then every once in a while, you'll come across something from the Dunhams, from Nikki and Seth, and it'll say, uh, humidifier returned, refunded. Because <laughs> that's how we roll. Like, so I don't know how it works, but somehow we return more to Amazon than we get. I'm not even sure how it works. Like, we just like keep, keep doing it. So, um, but this, this whole thing, this buzzing was a reminder for me, and as God kind of spoke in my heart, spoke to me, um, here's kind of what I heard him tell me speak, is that this, this reminder is a lot like Jeremiah. I mean, here's why. Uh, because it's this reminder of sin over and over and over again, right? And so when you read Jeremiah, like oftentimes when you, you want, you're like, you're, you're like, man, I need some encouragement. Um, so you're like, okay, where am I going to open up? I'm going to open up the Psalms. I'm going to go to Psalms. Maybe I need some comfort. I go to Psalm 23. Whatever it is, like there's a whole ton of places that we can go in Scripture, right? Um, we're going to be in chapter 6 and 7 this morning uh, in Jeremiah. And can I just tell you right now, if there's someone in your life that needs encouragement, do not send them to Jeremiah 6 and 7. Not a good passage for that. In fact, honestly, the entire book is, is, is one of hope, but there's not a lot of encouragement in it. There are things, there's powerful truths in this. Uh, and it's like Jeremiah oftentimes feels like a broken record, right? It's sin and wrath and judgment, sin and wrath and judgment over and over. And you're like, man, Jeremiah, can you like, you're just like the most discouraging person possible. Could you just stop for a second and say something nice, <laughs> you know? And yet, these are the words, Jeremiah is just, a, he's just an instrument. Just remember this. These are God's words to his people. And here's why it feels like this constant buzzing and reminder, and that's really meant to be for our hearts, because we're not dealing, Jeremiah is not dealing with simple sin, Simple sin might be something like where, gosh, you, like, you get frustrated uh, with uh, your spouse, you get frustrated with someone at school, or you lie about something, right? Like, so those are all like, not good, but those are part of everyday life. Those are normal, everyday things that is just going to be a constant struggle in this life, right? It's simple sin. Um, but Jeremiah is dealing with something much deeper, much more treacherous, and something such, much more systemic, and it's the issue of idolatry. And so really, if you think about it this way, um, if we were to preach one sermon on idolatry and then move on, right, do you think that we would all get it right? Are, are we that rational, that logical of people? We preach it and we go, great, here we go. I just, I just reoriented my entire life. I did everything I need to. Here I go. Nope, that's just not the way the human heart works. And so Jeremiah is this constant buzzing. Bzz, 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 bzz. 
is because it's dealing with something very deep and treacherous, and it's this idea of idolatry. You guys, we were created in the image of God, right? Created in the image of God. God is the, is the one being that is meant to sit on the throne of our hearts, and yet in this this cosmic, universal fall, right? What we did is that we took God, we placed him on the side, and we feel the void, the emptiness of the space. And so of natu- instead of naturally just putting God like right back where he should be, what do we do? We grab all these other things and we exchange the glory of the creator for the small g glory of the created, right? And we just start putting it up there and putting it up and putting it up, right? And this is, this is what's happening. And so the paradigm has shifted for the human being. And the, the narrative now that runs my life is that whatever is on the throne in my life is the thing in which I reorient my entire life around. And for lack of a better word, here's what I'm going to say. Whatever is on this throne is what I worship, this is what it is. This is worship. Whatever, whatever I'm reorienting my entire life around, because you're like, gosh, Seth, I don't, I don't have idols. I'm like going, whatever you reorient your entire life around other than God, that's what you're worshiping, right? And that's what the book is dealing with in Jeremiah, right? And so here's the deal. Um, these are hard words. There's not a lot of encouragement. So full disclosure, very uh, few uh, encouraging words uh, in chapters six and seven, but we'll end with the cross and communion. So, so hang in there, right? So hang in there to the end. But you need to hear this, right? There's hard words here that Jeremiah, that God is using through Jeremiah to get a hold of the human heart. And it's significant. And guys, um, if you're reading, if you're reading Jeremiah chronologically, like, like starting with the number one and going to the right, and you think that it's going to flow chronologically, it's not going to work well for you. Because Jeremiah is an anthology, which means it's a collection of stories. So it's kind of just haphazard and random. So we're going to be, we're going to start in one verse in chapter six, but then we're going to jump to chapter seven. And when we do that, we're actually going to jump 18 years in Jeremiah's life. He's going to go from being a youth to a young adult dude, right? And here he's going to be over on this side. We're going from Josiah the king to Jehoiakim the king. And in chapter seven, the entire city is actually already under siege. And that's where we're going to be, right? And that's the context in, in the book. And here's what I want you to know. You cannot read chapter 7 in Jeremiah without reading chapter 26. So go later today, later this week, go back and read chapter 26. Because chapter 26 is actually the story that's connected to the sermon that he's going to give in chapter 7. And here's what you need to know about chapter 26. Is that everything that he preaches makes people want to kill him. So I'm going to stand here and just right now say, please don't harm the messenger, right? This is one of those things. It's like, there's just hard things in this. It's just challenging. It's painful. It's hard. But again, we will end with the cross and we'll end with communion. So hang, hang in there, okay? So we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 6, just looking at one verse to start. It's verse 16. But I want to sum up what's happening or what has happened in chapter 6 to this point because we need to be reminded of this. What God has said is that there is destruction. There's this army coming from the north, right? Because we're not there yet in chapter Chapter 7, we're not 18 years in the future, we're 18 years in the past, right? So here we are, and God's saying there is destruction that's coming from the north, and, and that's going to happen unless you change your ways. Like, unless things change, that is going to happen, okay? And I just go, okay, so we, many of us, most of us in this room have never seen war. 
And so let's just, let's just let's put this into perspective for a moment. Let's put this into perspective for a moment because what God says is that there's an army that's going to come and they're going to lay siege to Jerusalem. Take a look at this picture. This picture um, is actually outside of a place called Masada, which is further south in Jerusalem, or excuse me, further south in Israel. Um, but as you're looking from the top of this palace, you look down through the valley, you see in the far, kind of that middle right there, this kind of this random, you know, square. And you're like, wow, that doesn't look normal. That's because that's the deconstructed wall, a broken down wall of an invading army. An army came to lay siege to this castle, to this palace. They come, what do they do? They set up shop, they make their own little city, their own little protection. And I want you to imagine, this isn't Jerusalem, but I want you to imagine walking to the, to the walls of Jerusalem and looking out over the edge and seeing in the near distance an entire army ready to kill you. Just quiet. What if somebody did that to your house? What if even just 10 families were like, man, we don't like them. We're going to collectively lay siege to their house, build a little, our own little fort outside. That's terrifying. It's not a good feeling. And what God says is that these people are actually going to build a siege wall. Take a look at this next picture. So you might see there's this little slope at the this front and this middle, right? This kind of mid-ground. So what they would have done is that they would have brought all of this, these rocks and dirt and they would have built it upon over and over and over. And eventually what they do is they create this massive like ramp up into the city, and it's just over time. I mean, think about how long this has to take, right? And so think about your city being under attack that long that they could build this. But there's so much weight in this, this, this ramp that oftentimes what would happen is once they get to the top, the wall would just crumble beneath a bit as people then would invade your city to kill you. Okay, this is the context. This is what God says, this is what's gonna happen. You would think that these people would listen. He says, you guys are at a crossroads, right? You guys are at a crossroads in life, and yet they have these choices. Like, how are we going to respond to what God is saying about this judgment that is yet to come? Now, here's the deal. I just want to say this from the forefront, okay? So here's the deal. Um, I do not, Seth Dunham, do not have a personal, straight-from-the-Lord prophetic word uh, about whatever God is doing in this world. I don't. I don't have any judgment or act that God is doing something on our culture, our nation, our world. I don't have that. But here's what I do know, is that there are things happening in the human heart in Jeremiah that have direct parallels to what the human heart is doing in today's world, both inside the church and outside the church. So that's what I do know, and that's what makes this hard and painful, is that we're going to see and hopefully see how this actually makes sense in today's world. And God's saying, gosh, guys, you guys, to the people of Judah, he's saying, you guys are at a crossroads, and you have some decisions in front of you that you're going to have to make, okay? So chapter 6, verse 16, it says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. Okay, just pause. Let's stop there, right? Stand by the roads and look. Like, if you're driving, let's just imagine you're driving your car, and you come to an intersection. Let's just for a moment pretend that you're going home. You know instinctively, if you've taken this route before, you know exactly where you need to turn. And so you turn. Okay, this is where I turn right, and then I turn left, and then I turn right. And you don't even have to think. I mean, it's so routine, you don't even have to think about the direction that you're going or where you're turning. Right? Because you've done it before. Right? Um, 
Maybe you're following Google Maps, and it's just telling you where to go, okay? But here, I want you just to imagine, what if you're driving your car, and you come to an intersection, you would naturally turn right, but what if you just stopped and took in all of your surroundings for a moment, and you actually looked and said, what are the options that I have in front of me? Because I would naturally just turn right, but what if I should turn left? <laughs> what if I should go straight? What if I should go backwards, turn around? Right? And see, what's happening here in this moment is that God, like remember, this is, this is all about idolatry. And so what we've done is we've, we've taken God off the throne and we put something else up on the throne. And oftentimes what we don't realize is if we just attribute this to simple sin in my life, I stand at a crossroads and it's whatever that I am reorienting my life around, whatever it is that I'm actually worshiping, right, it's right there. And maybe it's so deep I don't even know it, but like I get to this crossroads and I have this decision to make and I go, whoop, I got to turn right. And I miss that what's guiding and directing my life is something totally other than God. And this happens to us all the time, personally. We have these personal crossroads in our lives. And sometimes it happens in really simple, mundane things, and sometimes it happens in big and complicated things. But it's not just a me thing, it's also a we thing. Because we collectively stand at a crossroads. In fact, this, these God's words through Jeremiah to the people of Judah, this is collective. He's saying that it's the collective excuse me, choices of the people of Judah that have led them to this point. This is where all of your decisions together have brought you, right, is to this space. And you have a, you're at a crossroads. Judah, people, my people, you're at a crossroads. What's your decision going to be? Right, this is what God is laying out in front of them, right? And here's what he says. So if you were just to stand at the crossroads, stand at the roads and look, like actually think about the options, because here's what I want you to do. Here's what's good for you, is if you would ask for the ancient path, right? Seek the ancient path, right? So what he's saying is like, don't just look at the main road right in front of you. Don't just look at the road that you always take, because guess what? There's another road, there's a totally other path. And it might be hidden by vines, it might be grown over, it might be weedy, it might be a whole lot of things, and you might have to search to discover it, but lo and behold, yeah, there's another way. There's another road that, that I could follow. Which, by the way, Jesus talks about this, doesn't he? He says there's two types of roads. There's one that's really wide, and there's one that's really narrow. Right, you remember this? The wide one goes where? To destruction. And it's a path that is heavily traveled, it is trampled, it's, it is six, it's a six-lane highway. And then there's a narrow road, there's a small path, and it says that this is the road that leads to eternal life, right? Jesus talks about this. Somebody caught me in between services, he goes, boy, those rock and rollers got it right. I was like, excuse me? He goes, well, there's a stairway to heaven, and there's a highway to hell. I was like, interesting. <laughs> I guess so, <laughs> you know, like it's narrow, wide, narrow, wide, right? This is really, this is interesting. When we start to think about this, this is what, like, even Jesus talks about this, right? This is the reality. And so here's the thing, is he, he goes on, he says, don't just seek for the ancient path, it's, it's like seek for the good path, because when you find it, that's the good way. This is the way that God designed you. And, and once you find it, right, here's what I want you to do. Don't just like uncover it and go, oh, yep, there's another path, cool. The highway it is. Just walk in it. There's this real intentional obedience in terms of walking. And I've said this, guys, a, a lot of times, and I will continue to say this because I think this is so important. In the Hebrew, the word walk is the word halak, and halak refers to your entire way of living. 
It doesn't mean your gait. It doesn't mean how you put one foot in front of the other. It means that figuratively in sense of like how you live life from sun up to sundown, Sunday to Saturday. That's your halak. That's your life. That's what he's talking about. So God is inviting them into this relationship where he says, guys, there's another path, and it's the good way, but it's going to be hard because it's this reorientation. It's going to mean that everything in your life is going to be reoriented around me, which means then you're going to have to take whatever is here, put that down here, and put me back up here. That's what God is saying. But when you do that, when you do that, it's going to be good for you. Why? Because he says, when you do that, you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. Now, you would think, after all of those words of impending judgment, that they would be like, gosh, God, yeah, I got to get rid of these idols. All right, this, by the way, is just is a map of like Old Testament Jerusalem. This is the temple, those would be the walls. Can you just imagine looking outside of this and you see an army that's ready to invade and God says, you have idols you need to get rid of, you should say, I'm in. Whatever you need, right? And what do the people say? They say, no thanks. We will not walk in it. We, we will not. We just, we choose not to. Now, here's what they're not saying, okay? This is, this is significant. They're not saying, God, we don't want you in our life. We're not saying that we want to totally disregard you, right? We want you. We just want you over here and not here, right? We want you on the side, not at the center. We want all these other things in life, right? That's what they're, they're ultimately saying. And God's saying, reorient your life, right? Which, by the way, when God says, look for the good way, what is that, right? There's this idea that for them, the good way, this, this way of life, uh, as was found in, in the Old Testament law, like first five books of the, of the Old Testament, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy, primarily Deuteronomy. And so for them and for us, right, it's really that the Bible, this collection of 66 books, which is one story, one book, one story about God the creator, who he is, and what he's doing in the world to redeem a broken people who are far from him. That's what the story is about. And so we come back to this, and we find that this is the absolute truth. At the end of every single day, at the end of every single hour, no matter what lies I face in this world, this has in some way, shape, or form, the answer. It has to, because this is God's word to us. But it's not just about truth, it's also about what it points us to, and it's a way of living. Because remember, Jesus comes later, right? And Jesus is the epitome who says, gosh, guys, I know that I have like God powers, and you don't, and I don't have sin, and you do, but I want you to live like me as best as possible. I like, am the person to follow. I, my lifestyle is the lifestyle that I want multiplied into this world, which is why disciple making was so important to him, right? He says, this is the life that I want you to lead in this world. So it's about truth and it's about life. And so for us, what we have, again, is our struggle is that because we've taken God off of here and we have other things up here because there's that void and we grow enchanted with all these things. Like there's this enchantment. We go, ooh, it's shiny. It's satisfying. It's, it's, it's great for my life. And so we put it here. And as I grow tired of this one, right, you would think I would just take that off and put God here. But instead, I just start swapping things in and out over and over and over. And I start doing this. 
and I keep going, and I keep going. But guys, here's the reality. The only way to fully grow disenchanted with these types of things is to remove it and then to put God where he belongs. It's so, so, so important that we understand this in our life. And yet they say, we will not walk in it. And so this is why we go right back into judgment and wrath, because God has no choice, no other way to get their attention than to do this in their world, which is then for us, guys, we have to then wrestle, why is idolatry so important in our lives? It's not important because of wrath and judgment. That's not it. What's important about idolatry is that we've exchanged the glory of the creator for the created. You see, it's all about worship. It's all about what we worship. That's at the heart of this. That's why idolatry is so important. And so as we shift from Jeremiah 6 into chapter 7, what we're going to find is that it's written in such a way that we go from this to this idea of worship. What are we worshiping, right? And, and it's, it's kind of like what we're going to find is that God is putting the, the, the people's worship in air quotes. That's kind of what we're going to find, your worship, right, in air quotes. And so what's going to happen is that we're going to move from this idea of standing culturally, collectively standing at a crossroads to where God is going to place Jeremiah and says, this is where I want you to stand because the people over here are making the wrong decision. I'm going to place you right here, okay? Chapter 7, verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord, the word that, uh, excuse me, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Okay, we're going we're gonna to stop there um, for a second, and we're going to come back over here, right? <clears throat> so, this, uh, these are the walls of the temple, okay? These are the walls of the temple. These would have been the walls of kind of Old Testament uh, Jerusalem, okay? So, it's, uh, it's in this space um, that uh, there's a building, right? Right, or at least there's walls right here. This is kind of the walls, the outer walls of the temple. And inside, there would have been another building. And that building is split into two things, two places. The, the front one uh, is, the, is the holy place. And this is where priests would go. And only priests are allowed in this space. Uh, and then back here is where the Ark of the Covenant would be. Right? This is kind of like God's throne. Okay, this is kind of the Old Testament version of our heart, so to speak. It's a figurative thing, right? So this is like the throne room of God, okay? And only the high priest is allowed to enter into this, into this room, into the space once a year uh, on what's called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, right? So only priests are allowed in this place. Which, which just remember, by the way, um, who was Jeremiah born to? He was born to this guy named Hilkiah. Do you remember who Hilkiah was? He was a priest. So here's what's interesting. God is going to call Jeremiah, who was born to be a person who works in here, to actually speak against these people. So here's what happens, is that people uh, from the city, right, they would come like, through these cool little tunnels, actually, right here, right, through these little tunnels up through the walls and underground, and they would come around, 
right? And they'd come right over here. They'd enter through these gates right here, right? And they'd go to worship. And this is a powerful image because the word worship, uh, it means to like lay uh, prostrate before, the, before God. It's like this idea of bowing before. And so it's these people who are coming in, right? And they're acting in some sense as if nothing is wrong. They're worshiping God, right, for who he is. They're entering. Everything seems to be good, right? And God places Jeremiah right here. He says, this is where I want you to stand, Stand at the gate in the temple. Here's my question to you. How would you like to be right here? How would you like to be right here? Remember, keep in mind that what Jeremiah says, this is 18 years into the future, right? But remember that what Jeremiah says almost gets him killed. And it makes sense because he's going to call out all of these people. He's one against thousands. It's, this is powerful isn't it? Right? Remember, right? Remember is that there's this army out here, right? And so what happens is, is that every time the people run into danger, like they, they're up here, you go, gosh, I'm over here. I'm looking out over the wall. Oh my goodness, what do I see? An army. What do I do? Woo! Over here. This is what I do. And I run to the temple, right? And they come into this space, right? That's what they're doing, okay? Now, but let's see, what's the message that Jeremiah gives these people, right? He says this in verse 3. All these people are entering into worship, and he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Again, it's attached to this, right? But here's what he says. Here's the problem, people. Here's the problem. You trust in deceptive words, because what they're doing is they have this mantra. It's this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see what's happening, right, is as they look, right, over here, they get scared. What do they do? They run into the temple and they have this phrase that they use. This is the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, right? And they think that that's going to save them. They think that that's going to deliver them. Why? Because as they look at this army, they go, gosh, there's no way that God would ever allow his temple to be destroyed. No way. He's not going to do it. This is, this is God's throne room. Like God's, God is at stake here. There's no way that he's going to let, like, let something happen. And so they have this phrase, but they don't take their change seriously at all. Right? Here's what they do. They just keep running to the temple over and over and over and over again in times of trouble. And here's what's happening. They're showing there's this massive disconnect between their actions and their heart. They trust in these deceptive words over and over. And here's the deal, guys. They presume something. They presume upon the temple. They presume that God won't allow that to be destroyed. And in so doing, they use it as a scapegoat and an excuse to live life however they want. You see, here's the deal. Like, um, I just want to set this up for you guys. Like, God oftentimes uses the idea of a marriage covenant to describe his relationship. So I just want to set forth um, a, a dangerous hypothetical to you guys and use Nikki and I's marriage as, as, a, as a story here. This is not true, but I want you to hear this. What if, what if I went out and had an affair with somebody other than Nikki. And then I came home and said, but we have a ring. Everything's fine. And I put it back on and I go back out and I do it again. And I come back and I put it back on. Everything's fine. You see, I'm presuming upon something, aren't I? 
I'm taking something serious and I'm playing with it very flippantly. And the same thing is true with Jesus. Now, God's grace is unending, right? It's eternal, it's limitless, right? God's grace, the more I understand my sin, the deeper it goes, and yet the deeper God's grace always is. And yet sometimes in life, what we do as Christians is that we do this disconnect and we come to church and we praise God for the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy, and then we go and live life however we want to, whether willful sin or just in ignorance of what Jesus would normally do, and I disengage from the lifestyle of Jesus, and then I come back to church, and I go, but I have the cross, and I, and I presuppose, I presume the cross, and as much as that might be true, that God's grace is real and limitless, it doesn't make it okay. What we're talking about here is not just simple sin. We're talking about idolatry and the way that it works. And what God is saying through Jeremiah to these people, to the people of Judah, he says, guys, there's no amount of worship that you can do to make up for what's happening outside of the temple. So check this out. In, in chapter 7, verse 5, okay, see, he kind of lays this out for us, right? He says, for if, this is what he's saying, if you truly amend your ways, right? This is what he said in the first four verses, and he goes on, he details this. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, and if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. Okay, we're going to stop there, right? Right, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of things, right? This is the first time in the book that we're really introduced to this idea of injustice, right? There's stuff happening in society. There's a people that is overlooked, right? And they are therefore being harmed or not helped at least or violently even hurt, right? And this is happening in this space. And so what God is doing is he's talking to his people as he starts with this kind of this general kind of umbrella thing, right? If you truly amend your ways, then if it's if you truly execute justice. And then he does these, these moral, ethical, and religious things. And what he's doing is he's showing the totality of all of the possible decisions that you and I could ever make in a single day. There's all these decisions that I can make. You stand at a crossroads. What are the decisions that you could make in a single day, right? And he puts us into this space. And here's what I want you to understand. There's two things that are very important to understand in this reality. Because what happens is he lists all of those five things at the very beginning. Um, injustice, the, like oppressing the sojourner, the widow, all these people. Um, is that something that's happening in here? No. Where is that happening? It's happening out here, out here, out here, out here, out here, maybe out here, right? You see, you see what I'm saying? See, everything that he's talking about is not things that they're doing in here. It's the lifestyle that they're living out here. And so it's this disconnect between Sunday, right, for them, worship. We come in and worship, but then there's the Monday to Saturday, and I have all these things that I'm doing in life however I want. So the first thing to notice is that those things aren't happening in this space. They're happening out here, Monday to Saturday, okay? The second thing I want you to notice is that of those things that God lists for us to do, those, all this executing justice and all those types of things, um, here's the reality. This is very painful, and this is helpful maybe even to write this down because it's good to wrestle with this. You cannot do those while at the same time protecting your idols. You cannot execute justice and still protect your idols. 
You cannot do those things because they're a natural conflict because it's about what's on the throne and how that orients my life, right, and how that's actually working out in my life. And so what God says in this, of all those things, which these are a huge issue, right? These are all big social issues that are happening in society, in their culture, right? These people, he says it stems from something in that last piece. He says, if you do not go after other gods, right? Because again, at the stem of this is this idea of idolatry. And so we have this horizontal aspect, how we treat people, and then we have this vertical aspect, how we love God, right? Sounds a lot like Matthew 22. What are the greatest commandments? Jesus says, what? Love your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? That's number one, right? What, what God should be right here, right? Can, can, I, can I love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind while he's on the side and other things are right here? No, right? So it's this, right? Love God. Love others. The second one is like it. Love others like yourself, right? right? It's super significant as we understand these things that are happening. This is a systemic thing. And so here's what I want you guys to realize. When you think about this, and he says, do not go after other gods, okay? Um, what, are they, what are they being punished for? Actually, a better question would be, what are they not being punished for? Because here, here's the truth. Here's what they're not being punished for. It does not say in the text or in this book that they have ceased or stopped doing sacrifices. If they had, that would be a big deal, wouldn't it? Because sacrifices were the main ritual and ceremony for us to, to be cleansed and purified before God of our sins, right? So if had they had stopped them, that would be really bad, but it doesn't say that. They're not being punished for stopping them. Here's the other thing. They're not being punished for doing them wrong, it's not like they're entering in and they're bringing less good animals like, like, like spotted lambs and, you know, like the, the worst of the litter. It's not that they're doing that. Everything that is happening in this space is exactly the way that it should. Do you see why this is so dangerous? Because what God says is you're not being punished for this. What you're being punished for is what's happening out here. It's this religious prostitution. It's this idea that you're, you're going after other gods. You're bringing all these things into your life. It's this idea of what I might call holy syncretism. Holy, like syncretism is this idea when I, when I grab things from other faiths or religions or beliefs or just life in general and I pull those into my life. And those might have these competing truth claims, but it doesn't really matter because what I do is I bubble them up, I bind them up with as much MacGyver duct tape as I can and I create this ball where Jesus is there and all these other things are there too. And yet it's okay because Jesus is holy. And this is the way that we live life, oftentimes. And it's incredibly, incredibly painful. This is hard truth. This is the reality, right? Because we say, gosh, we want Jesus. It's not that we say, as Christians, it's not that we say, gosh, Jesus, we don't want anything to do with you, right? We want you. We just want you on the side over here and not here. Right? This, is, this is the nature of our hearts. This is what we're doing. So it's not just about sin. It's about idolatry. And this is why this is so painful. This is what's hard. And what God says is, guys, like what's happening in here is spilling out into the world out there. It's spilling out into the world. Just listen to these words. And I'm not, we're not even going to unpack them. Just listen. Just let these sit in your heart. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, 
and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. And then go on and continue doing all these abominations. Does it sit hard? There's this reality, there's this disconnect that oftentimes happens in our hearts, and it happened for this people. This is the nature of idolatry. And guys, it's not an issue of like culture gone bad. This is an issue of the human heart. It's an issue of the human heart. And it's not about sin. It's, about, it's not just about simple sin. It's about idolatry. That, that you and I, that we have the audacity at times to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, man, I love you. You are awesome. I love the grace and forgiveness that you offer. And yet I am going to continue to go and live and act unjustly. That's the audacity that we have. There are three steps up on this podium. And every single time I walk up these steps, I'm reminded that I don't deserve to be here. I'm no better than any of you. We all have things that we struggle with that we want to put up here instead of God. And it's only by the grace of God that those things can be removed. This is a world, the world that we live in is filled with racism, it's filled with injustice, it's filled with political unrest, it's filled with widows, it's filled with homeless, it's filled with a whole host of people who are broken and hurting and needy, and yet oftentimes we, we miss them. And Nikki and I had a conversation for about an hour yesterday about all the things going on in this world, and it's hard. It's painful. Because here's the truth. Nikki and I have a child of color at home. And I can't ignore the issues of this world. The things that I would, I never set out to intentionally ignore those things or to do harm. But I'd never engaged it. Because I didn't need to. I should not have been overlooking the people of this world, and yet I oftentimes did. And now we're at a point where we go, gosh, God has thrust us into the middle of this. We cannot help but be a part of this. And how we enter into the brokenness of the world. I want to give you guys two things here really quick. One is this. Uh, it's an easy litmus test. because We've got a vertical relationship with God. We've got a horizontal relationship with God. If you want to get a good litmus test of how people are doing in their relationship with God, I want you to look at how they treat people. And I don't just mean the people that look like them and think like them. Because it's easy to do that. An easy litmus test. How are we doing vertically? How are we doing horizontally? That's the first thing I want to give you. The second thing is this, guys, is that I think about this in my own life, and I just kind of said this, is that I never actively set out to, like, to ignore right, or to do harm to people that I wouldn't normally otherwise do it. But what I've learned in my life over these last couple of years is that by choosing to not enter into those things, to not be a part of the solution, to not be a peacemaker, to not be someone who cares for the people in need is actually another form of oppression. 
And I want you to look at Jesus. Think about Jesus. Gosh, when people disagreed with Jesus, what did he do? <laughs> okay. I love you. <laughs> think about that. As we start to think about how we deal with people and how we enter into the world, Jesus is our model to follow. Guys, in a second, we're going to do communion. But here's what I want to do. Before we do that, I want to take us back to the crossroads for a second, okay? Because I want to ask you this first question. And it didn't actually show up on our screen. It wasn't working. Great. We got it fixed. Okay. First question is this. What crossroads am I? Because again, it's a me thing and there's a we thing. So I or we standing at right now? What are the decisions that God has placed in front of us as individuals and collectively as a community? Let me ask you these, and let's, let's hold off on moving, because here's what I want you to, is that will I, ask yourself this, will I seek beauty and love, or will I gaze upon sex and violence? Will I defend the gospel boldly, or will I never talk about it? Will I love my coworker or that student at school who drives me crazy, or will I gossip and slander back? And it's just three of a thousand. But here's the deal. It's not just me. It's also we, because we collectively stand for better or for worse. We stand together at a cultural crossroads, just like the people in Jeremiah. And so I ask us this question. Will we together defend the defenseless? Will we seek to care for people who don't look or think like us? Will we serve the underprivileged? Will we ultimately seek the welfare of this city where God has placed us? It's a powerful, powerful question. Or will we look at Jesus and say, no thanks, we will not walk in it. It is a powerful, powerful question. Second question, and this is deeply powerful too. And I'm guessing, I gotta ask you, this, I gotta ask myself this too. Am I the person who's standing at the gate calling people back into right relationship with God or am I the people who are entering through the gate? Powerful question. This week, here's my challenge. Pray for those people in Fargo-Moorhead who are experiencing injustice. Join me. Each week, we want to be praying together collectively as a family and seeking opportunity to love and seek the welfare of the city in which we live. And so would you pray with me this week for people experiencing injustice? Because here's the deal, guys. I know that in chapters 6 and 7, there's not a lot of encouraging words. I get that. It's hard. It's painful. Except I want to challenge you to think about one thing. How does Jesus transform this entire scenario? How does Jesus readdress and, 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 and redefine the narrative in the world? Because we have this cosmic swap, right, where we took God off the throne and we put other things on there, right? And the reality is... The re guys, guess this is, this, is, this is so true. We, we took things that are shallow and surfacey and that are so short-lived and we put them in this space and I go, gosh, like that's just like, it just doesn't even make sense. What if though we took Jesus and we reversed the swap and instead of just, just interchanging, exchanging these things, we put Jesus back on the throne of our hearts and collectively together. Think about the joy, the satisfaction, the momentum, the energy that that would bring to your life. 
with Jesus there, with Jesus' love, his forgiveness, his grace at the center of your life, it becomes this, this powerful motivator inside, and it also, it doesn't stay here, right? What happens, what God is saying, what's happening in here affects what's happening out here. And the same thing is true for us with the gospel, right? If Jesus is the center here, guess what? It spills into the world, and we seek justice, and we seek to actually restore and bring help to the oppressed. We, we seek after the widows, the underprivileged, the needy, right? This is a whole new thing, right? It's incredible. So as we think, I want you to think about this. We started with this idea of standing at a crossroads. There's these decisions, collective decisions. Then God, he takes Jeremiah and he says, I want you to stand at the city gate or at the, at the gate of the temple. And I want us to move one more place and I want us to stand at the foot of the cross. I want you to look at this picture. This is a picture with 90, like as much certainty as I can muster, 99.9%, this is the exact spot where Jesus would have stood when he was being questioned by Caiaphas. No fault, no fault, no fault. With Pilate, no fault, no fault, no fault. How does he respond? Gosh, guys, dude, I'm Jesus, I'm the son of God, get me out of here. Takes it. He would have looked through this hole in the ceiling, which is where Caiaphas would have stood because Caiaphas in his high ground would not have been able to be near a prisoner for sake of accidentally touching them or the passing of germs, making them ceremonially unclean in which they would have to richly purify themselves. He couldn't do that because he's up there. Here's Jesus on the bottom and eventually it's these conversations that would have led him to the cross. Here, we'll just, let's read Luke 23 together as, as, we, as we look at Jesus' death before we do communion, okay? Read this together. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Guys, this morning we stand at a distance from the cross. Thousands of years, thousands of miles, but it doesn't make what happened on the cross any less important or any less significant. Let's pray as we lead into communion. Father, Lord, this morning, today, and as we go about this week, Lord, I pray that for each of us, each and every single day, right, that we would reteach ourselves the gospel because here's the truth, God, I know that in my heart and in all of the hearts here, our disposition Every single day, the kingdom that I, that I and we are most naturally inclined to build is our own kingdom.
whether it's a kingdom of our own building, of this willful sin, uh, maybe it's just this kingdom that we want to like, keep Jesus' rhythms at length. Lord, but the reality is, is that as we look at Matthew 22 and as Jesus exclaims this to us, he says, guys, love God, love me, and love others. Love me with all of your heart. Love me with all of your strength, with all of your soul, with all of your life. Would you love me? Would you put me at the forefront of your heart? Allow me to sit in that space where you reorient your entire life around me because it's in that place that you will find rest. Jesus said, come to me, those who are weary, because my burden is easy, my yoke is light. God, I pray that we would, we would be disenchanted with the idols in front of us and that we would be so drawn to you in this time and may that spill out of us into the world. Lord, as we think about this, if there's anything in our hearts as we are about to take communion or if there's anything that we need to confess before you, Lord, would we bring that to you and ask for your forgiveness? And Lord, would you bring this into right alignment as we leave this place that we can celebrate you with wholehearted joy. We love you. In your name we pray, amen.